It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you'll be swept off to. That's what Gandalf the Grey told Frodo Baggins at the beginning of their adventure. Have you ever felt like life is like that road? Like you've been swept away, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where to put your feet to hold on? Well, that's what we're here for today. We're here to talk about the Wildwood, where all the crazy things happen, where all the wild stuff happens, and you just don't know which direction to go. Today, I'm going to bring you some words from the Wildwood that'll help you keep your feet. Welcome back to our podcast, everybody. I hope you had a fantastic new year and a good week that has followed after that. Hopefully, everything is going good in this brand new year of 2024. We're going to get back into our exciting study of the book of John, the Gospel of John, written by the youngest of the apostles. That would be John. And of course, the last three weeks, we've covered chapter one. So John's sort of given us the start of the adventure. You know, I love adventure books. I love adventure stories. And every single good story starts by showing us who the person is, who this hero is, what is their epic adventure, what are they all about. And every adventure, from Indiana Jones to Star Trek, begins with some singular event something that changes the world in a moment now we did talk about the baptism of jesus but that wasn't the moment this is what is officially recorded in the book of john as the first miraculous event performed by jesus that sort of kicks off his ministry and it all began at a wedding we're going to look now at the first sign of the christian journey the journey that you and i take and we begin to follow Jesus Christ, there's this very first thing that happens, this first sign, and that is the sign of transformation. We use that word a lot in this modern world, transforming, transformative, transformation. See, something has changed in a person. Something has altered about who they are. We all go through different transitions in life. We go the transition from uh, child to teenager, teenager to adult single person to married person, couple to parents. All these things that change us forever happen with a singular event. Let's take a look at it today. We all know what it's going to be now. When we talk about the wedding at Cana in the chapter 2 of the book of John, people often miss the events behind the event. The event was a wedding, a commonplace thing, Many of us have been to more weddings than we can count or remember. And so weddings are not in and of themselves particularly memorable. But there were several events going on in the background, in the background of this whole wedding scheme, that I think we can all relate to in our Christian journey. Now there was a three-part display of God's power that occurred at this wedding that set the tone for the rest of the book of John. And if we look at our own lives today, our own walk with Christ begins with this same three-part display of God's power. Do you know what it is? Let's take a look at it. The very first place we want to start today, we want to go to the book of John, chapter 2, verse 1. The very first part of this display of God's power is that there is a problem. 
there's a problem. Always in the movies and detective stories, everything seems fine. They set the scene, and then there's a problem. Then something happens. Let's see what it is. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited. Remember now, Jesus was walking solo in the world. Now he has four people following him. That brings a lot of extra souls to a wedding when you've tried to figure out exactly how many people are going to be there. You need food for this many people. You need drinks for that many people. Suddenly, Jesus shows up, not with a plus one, but with a plus four. So that may have changed things just a little bit. It said Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any more wine. Now, you have to understand that in the Judean wedding in the first century, this was a major embarrassment. To not have something that was so commonplace as wine, it was served at every meal, it was served at every public event, to run out of wine, even the cheap stuff, was considered a black mark against the couple for not preparing adequately in advance for what was going to be going on. So when Jesus' mother says, hey, son, they don't have any wine, then this was actually a problem. But listen to his response. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Now, we've all heard again and again, yes, in the Hebrew language of the first century, this was not disrespectful. In America in 2024, this is disrespectful. This is sort of condescending. But for that first century, no, this would have not been anything out of the ordinary. In fact, this term, woman, is exactly what he used when he tenderly talked to Mary Magdalene at the resurrection. He referred to her as woman. That's in uh, chapter 20, verse 15. We're going to get there in a few months. And also when he spoke to his mother, when he was hanging on the cross, he spoke to her and called her woman. It was a respectful term. It was a tender term. It was all in how the word was delivered. And that's exactly why it's not a big deal here. It's a little different culture, a little different situation. But understand, he was simply saying, Mom, why are you talking about this with me? Because really, he was just there to observe the wedding. He wasn't called to officiate at the wedding. He was just called to be a guest. Now, Jesus goes on and says something very important. Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Because he said, what does is, what is this concern of yours have to do with me, mom? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Now, when we look at this, we know that already at this early stage of ministry, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. He's not winging it. He's not flying blind. He is not just making this stuff up as he goes. He already knows when the time will come for his power and glory to be revealed. And he knows that that time is not yet. But this is his mother, the woman who has raised him, who has loved him, who has told him about his miraculous birth from the time he was old enough to understand. So yeah, he understands it's not time for me to show my power, but this is mom. And mom looks and says, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So you see, Mom knew 
that Jesus was going to respond. Why? Because he was kind, because he was compassionate, because he cared for this couple. He cared for their embarrassment. He cared for the comfort of the guests and the family that had invited him. So you see, there was a problem, and it wasn't a small problem. It was a big problem. Think about this. What has really happened? Here is an event in someone's life. They come to the realization that they have no relationship with God. We might say instead of they have no wine, they have no spirit. They don't have a connection to God. They don't have a connection to the Holy Spirit. They are all alone in the universe. All of us have been at that place. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you know that moment when you realized you were disconnected from God. You realized you had come to the end of everything you knew how to do, every way that you knew how to make your life count, make it important, make it significant. You came to the place where you realized you had nothing before God Almighty to recommend you into his kingdom. I remember when I was born again back there in 1980. That's a long time ago for some of you. It's before some of your time. I was in a church revival, and the preaching pastor, Dr. Albert Rose, looked at us and said, if you were to die tonight, and you stood before the gates of heaven, and Jesus said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And back in 1980, I didn't have an answer. Back in 1980, I was still going on the whole, well, I was raised in church, and my parents were Christians, and my dad was a deacon, and all of these other things that you think are important, and you realize when it comes right down to it, you might know about Jesus, but you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And that's this sort of moment that we all have right here. Consider this, Romans 5, verses 8 through 10. But God showed his love for us. Put your name right there. Showed his love for you, and that while you were still a sinner, while you were still opposed to God's plan, while you still wanted to live your own life, do things your own way, Christ died for you. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God which is to come. And we live in a day and age when the wrath of God is closer than it's ever been. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we have been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. You see, it's not just saved from hell. It's saved from meaninglessness, saved from a life that doesn't matter, a life of embarrassment, a life of shame, a life where you constantly are living under the crushing burden of the mistakes you made earlier in life, younger in life, the, the bad decisions, the things you wish you could take back that you could undo. That's what salvation is. You're not just saved from hell. You are saved from living a life that has no point, no meaning, no forgiveness, no way to get straight with God because the only way to be straight with God is through the death of his son, Jesus. And that's this very first thing. There is a problem. The problem is we are separated from God because we insist on living our own life. We insist on doing it my way. Sorry, love Frank Sinatra, great singer. That song, My Way, was so wrong, it's not even funny. Because you can't do it your way and have it count towards God's kingdom. Our way only puts us further and further away from the Lord. 
only when we do it his way, through his son, through his sacrifice, then we have what we need. So there is a problem. There was a problem at the wedding feast in Cana. There's a problem in our lives today. Okay, so what's the next step? What's the next part of this story? John chapter 2, verse 6. Even though there was a problem, pay attention, there are resources at hand that we may not be aware of. There's resources at hand that we may not be aware of. John chapter 2, verse 6. Now six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. These were the ceremonies of washing hands before eating, washing hands after eating. This ritual purification that was symbolic on the outside of what should be happening on the inside. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So he's probably looking back at his mom going, Mom, I'm doing this because I love you. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now draw some water out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though, Though his servants who had drawn the water out, they knew. Because they had put water in and wine came out. So they understood that something amazing had happened. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the finest wine first. Then after people are imbibed or drunk or a little under the influence, can't get behind the wheel of a chariot on that one, they bring out the inferior wine. They bring out the cheap stuff. But you have kept the finest wine until now. Think about your life, believer. What all you tried before you came to Jesus, what acts of, of, of service or mercy or grace or giving, all the things that you tried to do to get right with God, you tried to use everything of your own power to make things right, to set yourself in a place, to give yourself, quote unquote, good karma. Uh, I have a whole issue with that statement, but we'll get there another day. Think about this. Here were six stone jars filled with water, yet it is the power of God that transformed that water into wine. Now, the one that we know today, people that we know today who are changed, transformed by a divine encounter with Jesus Christ, it becomes evident and can be experienced. When you become a born-again believer, you look different. You act different. You sound different. You think different. You reason different. If you meet somebody who's mean, nasty, surly, selfish, condescending, etc., etc., and they say, oh, I found Jesus, and they're exactly the same way, you have to start asking, okay, what happened to what happened to you? Because when Jesus invades our lives, takes the old man, brings the new man, Something changes and it's evident. People can see that you're not the same person. Now, you know, he talks about the uh, the head waiter saying that you brought out the finest wine. Now, consider this. Three great historians throughout the old throughout the old world. There was Pliny the Younger, Plutarch, and Horace. Great historians. Now they would describe wine as good, or they would mention it as the best wine when it was quote-unquote harmless or innocent. Now, what does that mean for a wine to be innocent or harmless? Pure wine, the absolute best wine taken from the grapes and allowed to ferment, 
was free of any adulteration. Now, Romans loved to do mixed wines. They would mix something that was very powerful, very strong, with a, a, a good tasting wine, making its alcoholic content much higher, and it would really increase its strength in getting you intoxicated and making you completely uh, irrational, shall we say. You see, pure wine, good wine, innocent wine, doesn't need anything added to it. In fact, if you add something to it, you corrupt it. You change it. There's a lot of churches today that have taken the pure wine of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith, and they have added things to it. They have added works, such as you have to be baptized. You have to speak in tongues. You have to... Um, Attend church every time the door opens. You have to give a 12 or 15% of your, of your money as a tithe. You have to go above and beyond. You have to give two years of your life in voluntary service without getting paid, of course. Maybe being fed, we don't know. But you have to give up two years of your life to earn this place in the kingdom. And that is such ridiculousness. Jesus paid the price to give you everything you need for salvation. You can't earn, you can't add anything to what he did. Otherwise, you adulterate the wine. There are other words for what that does, but they're just not polite words. But it means simply you, you, you pollute it, you destroy it, you take away that, that purity that, that men like Pliny and Plutarch and Horace were talking about, that Something in and of itself, something pure, something natural. That's what was best in the world. Not the stuff they added to it just to get drunk, just to, just to make themselves um, ridiculous. And it, it's exactly what it is. Consider this, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has been recreated. The water went into the jar and the wine came out. Why? Because it was transformed. Formed. It became something new. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you come to Christ, everything you were, all those sins, all those mistakes, all that stuff is wiped away and you're allowed to start pure. You start again. Now, you're going to stay that way? No, unfortunately, we as human beings are given to sin. We're given to selfishness. We're given to want to do it our own way. And, and that's a problem, but we can deal with each sin as it comes along because we have a pure starting place. We are a new creation. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything. For the Jews, you had to be circumcised or you were not God's people. And they wanted to add that to what was happening to the Gentiles all throughout the Gentile world. They were, okay, you can be a Christian, yeah, but you have to, get, you have to become a Jew first. You have to get circumcised. No. They settled this mess at the council at Jerusalem, where James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. That's the half-brother of Jesus, not the other James. He said it. All you have to do is have faith in Jesus and then live your life accordingly. And you know, you don't have to keep the Sabbath. You don't have to keep the dietary rules. You don't have to keep all of these other feasts because all that stuff was just to lead us to Jesus. And it's so important that we realize don't adulterate the gospel by adding things to control people. A lot of pastors, and I'm sorry to say this, pastors use rules to control people. 
They should leave you in the hands of the Word of God. Now, if you do that sincerely, you will have even less freedom than you think you should have because God puts a tighter hold on you. See, God doesn't want 10% of your life. He doesn't want 15 or 25 or 50%. He wants 100% control of your life, giving you the direction that will cause you to lead a life that will point people to the cross, that will point people to Jesus. 100% is what he wants. And that's why some people settle for cheap religion, because it only wants you one day a week or maybe twice a week. And, and that people can sacrifice and say, hey, I earned it. I got there. But consider this, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, way of thinking, way of behaving, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Remember, they had no spirits, but now they have the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the new way of behaving, the new way of conducting your affairs according to the word of God, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Absolutely amazing. Amazing how the word of God just spells it out again and again. So, okay, there's a problem, but the solution is right there in front of you. What's the solution? Just what it's always been. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. If you don't know that song, go back and find it. Listen to it. You will learn a lot from those old hymns. Us old people, we sang them things for a reason. It wasn't just to sing. It was to teach and to learn. I love contemporary Christian music. I love what is sung and, 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 and done in our churches today. But don't forget the old stuff. Don't forget the foundational stuff. Don't forget the bedrock of the gospel. Everything else is the whipped cream and cherries on top. The bedrock is the gospel. So what's that third part, that third act? Simple. There is a result of that encounter. Once you encounter Jesus, just like the water that went into the stone jars, you are changed and you become something more than you ever thought you could be. John 2 verse 11, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The reason for signs in the first century was to, was to show the truth of the gospel, was to manifest the glory of Jesus. Now that word manifest gets abused horribly in this day and age. First of all, Jesus manifested his glory. I am sorry to say this if it hurts your feelings. You can't manifest anything. Do you understand me? I love you guys, but I need you to understand, you don't manifest. God manifests in you those gifts and talents which give him glory. You may want to be a great singer, but God may make you a teacher. You may want to be a great preacher, but God may give you the gift of hospitality and taking care of kids and taking care of older people and maintaining the church building. I've known people with the gift of woodwork who could take a church that was beat up, beat down, tore up, and through that gift of their hands, 
repair and keep the lighthouse blazing in the dark night. And that's a gift you can never underestimate. Trust me. It says he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what they had when they had heard, you know, uh, come and see. And then they heard what? They said, oh, believe in me. Follow me. Now they know why they followed. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The result was this. Those who believed him, those who saw him, those who paid attention, believed. If you are a Christian, if you pay attention to the word of God and you pay attention to what's happening in the world today, you will believe. Why? Because you will see the power of God at work. The psalmist said, I would have despaired if I did not believe. I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living. I would despair today in 2024 if I did not believe. I would see the outworking of God's holy power through his people in the world today. And you don't have to be a preacher or a teacher or highly educated or anything. You have to be willing to go and see and follow the King of Glory. It's amazing that uh, when he said he revealed his glory, that word is the word um, declare. See, first of all, it says, and this what he declared by the sacred writer to be a miracle. This was called the first miracle. And it was done by divine power, not by us manifesting anything, not by us creating it, but by the power of God. And it produced a change in the substance of the water, which no human power could do. I have seen lives of people who were violent, angry, drunken, drug abusing, people who were in and out of jail. And when Jesus got a hold of them, he manifested in their lives the transforming power of the gospel. Because that's what Jesus does. He changes us from the inside. He takes the old dead man who is a, reb a rebel against God and he gives them the ability to bow a knee, to come before a holy God, and to be transformed by the whole thing. The amazing thing is, we see this one other place and then I'm done with you today. I promise I'll let you go. It says that he manifested his glory. Consider this, Isaiah 40, verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh shall be manifested, revealed, exposed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. One day soon, my friends, we will hear the call of the archangel, the trumpet of God, we will hear the voice of our Savior say, come up here. The same way he spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos. And we will be out of here. We will see that manifestation of God in the clouds. And then the seven terrible years of the tribulation will come. But through those seven terrible years, people will still come to faith in Christ. They will have to pay with their lives, with suffering, with pain, with agony, because they put off believing when they could have, and then they could have been taken out of here before all the horror begins. If I can tell you one thing today, it's this. You know that God wants to use you. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you're scared. Maybe you don't know how he can use you. 
You open your eyes. You look around. You be that person. You be that person that says, come and see. See that God is good. Come and hear him. Know it for yourself. You do that. And before you know it, we were going to hear that trumpet sound and we're going to be out of here. God bless you. God causes his face to shine on you, to give you strength. May he bring someone into your life that needs to hear the gospel. Until next week, God bless. Hey, thank you for visiting our podcast today. Both Words from the Wildwood and from the Archives are presented to you by our family as an offering to Almighty God in the hope that they will help you grow in your understanding of God's amazing Word. If what you hear has been a blessing, consider supporting our efforts by sending us your prayers and by letting others know where they can hear us on local podcasts. If you are in the U.S. and you are able to help in any way, shape, or form, please send any support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, P.O. Box 1321, Baytown, Texas 77522. If you are outside the States, God bless you and share Jesus with those that you can. God bless and we'll be back soon.